2: not the donkey or the elephant.
1: This is the podcast that's too liberal for conservatives and too conservative for liberals. I'm Patrick Miller. And I'm Keith Simon. And we choose truth over tribe. Do you? Jackie Hill Perry is everywhere. She's all over Instagram, sharing what she's learning from the Bible and her four beautiful kids that she has with her husband, Preston. She's all over the country, speaking at conferences and churches, using her skills as a Bible teacher and poet. She's on your bookshelf, or she should be. In her book, Gay Girl, Good God, she shares her story of becoming a follower of Jesus. In her most recent book, Holier Than Thou, she gives us a beautiful picture of God's holiness. And guess where Jackie Hill Perry also is? That's right, right here on Truth Over Tribe. We had a fantastic conversation. We talked about how the white church and black church handle politics differently, what it was like to leave a lesbian relationship to follow Jesus, if she's comfortable being a celebrity, what's behind her concerns about the Enneagram, and what parenting style she has. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Jackie Hill Perry, welcome to Truth Over Tribe.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: Man, there's so much I want to talk to you about, but did I get it right? You're from St. Louis? I am. I was born and raised in St. Louis for a little while. I moved on. I was pretty young. So we were from North County up in Florissant. Where were you from? Same. Same?
0: (laughs) Yeah, literally. Florissant? Yeah. Wow. I lived off of Halls Ferry.
1: Why is so close. Now, I'm a lot older than you, so it's not like we were hanging out at the same time yeah. or anything. But yeah, we lived off Florissant Road on St. Catherine. So when you were in St. Louis, were you into sports and stuff or, or no? No,
0: never. I stayed home and watched, you know, Jenny Jones and Ricky Lake. That was all I did.
1: <laughs> I did nothing good. What's the best thing about St. Louis? What's your best memories?
0: St. Louis is an interesting place. I would say, I think Living in LA now, living in Chicago, and now living in Atlanta, I think St. Louis has a humility to it, kind of just a Midwest yet Southern feel mm-hmm. that I think is kind of special.
1: I thought you were gonna say gooey butter cake.
0: Oh, I can't eat that. It just feels like sugar on sh- It's just too much. I thought you were it's- a big fan. No. No, I can't. It's just yeah, no. 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 It's like pecan pie. It's like we're just eating a handful of
1: sugar. That's what I like about it, but I uh, guess first God. too sweet for you.
0: <laughs> that's the tribe I'm representing, <laughs> non-gooey butter cakes.
1: Hey, before we get into stuff, I know you are connected in the Christian world. You travel, you speak to different groups, you're talking to different kinds of Christians all around the country. What's something that's encouraging you that you're hearing that's encouraging about the church? And then what's something that you're hearing that concerns you? <laughs>
0: encouraging, we are still learning, we are still trying, we are still pursuing, we are still praying, we are still attentive to the needs of the world and to the needs within the body. And so I I think seeing people not content with being stagnant, Mm -hmm. whatever that means, is encouraging. Discouragement, obviously it's a lot that I could be.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I know, just limit yourself to one.
0: (laughs) I think the disunity is discouraging. And obviously there's place for level of healthy division, right? You know, like over false doctrine, false teachers, blah, 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 blah. But I do think we are divided over things that we just shouldn't be divided over.
1: Like are you thinking politics or race or economics or what?
0: I feel like politics has been one of the main divisions mm-hmm. that I've seen. And it's interesting because I haven't even experienced the division locally, like in my church or in my communities. I've mainly seen it online. And so I think the online divisions can make it seem as if the divisions are louder and more significant than they might actually be. But still, I think that is pouring over and influencing the way we deal with each other when we're like in proximity to each other. So.
1: And you felt some of that. I mean, I remember when you tweeted a picture of Judge Jackson and her daughter. Oh, yeah. And you got a lot of pushback. And that's part of that political division, right? People came after you because they took a picture you were admiring between a mom and a daughter. And then they read a lot into that.
0: Yeah, that I was making a political statement.
1: Are you into politics much?
0: I'm not. I feel like it's assumed that I am. <laughs> but I only know of what I hear talked about most. And so I feel ever since I left Twitter, I've been more ignorant of many of the conversations surrounding politics since then.
1: Why did you leave Twitter, but not Instagram?
0: Because I think Twitter is a terrible place. (laughs) (laughs) I do. I think because it centers words Hmm. that it kind of gives room and space for all kinds of derogatory, unhelpful, disparaging, rude, critical ideas to be thrown at people. I think when it comes to Instagram, this is my theory. I think the very fact that Instagram centers faces immediately humanizes people. And so it seems like people, they're not as quick to disparage you because they have context for who you are, your humanity, your family, your friendships, all the things. Twitter is just you could say one sentence, people latch onto that sentence with no context for who you represent, you know? So
1: I don't like it. You and your husband Preston got a lot of pushback on the abortion issue, right? Because you didn't react the way people wanted you to, to react. Right. And I just think a lot of people are reading way, way too much into what was said or not said, and coming to these conclusions. What is that? tell you about Christians in America today, or at least Christians on Twitter, does it tell you that they're looking for a fight? Does it tell you that they're suspicious, that you've got to kind of toe a party line, that you can't have any of your own thinking, that you've got to be kind of in the group think, or you get ostracized and shamed, or no, is it something different?
0: It feels witch hunnish. It feels like this is less about you wanting to know what I think about, abortion and more about you want to know what side I'm on because I have plenty of content in the world about where I stand. You know, I've done a whole series with Desiring God about pro-life issues. I have poems about being a woman and the beauty of birthing children. Like I've never even hinted at being pro-choice, right? But just because I haven't made a tweet and made a statement on Instagram, somehow that's a signal. And so I do think there's a suspicion. I do think there's a tribalism. And I think some of the suspicion is warranted because we we want to safeguard the people we are listening to and learning from. But I think we just need to be more courteous in doing the research before we jump to conclusions.
1: Reminds me of back when George Floyd was killed. And then, you know, kind of through the court process, realized that he was murdered, and that's what the court came to. But there were people who were upset if you didn't post a black square on Instagram in honor of Black Lives Matter. Yeah, And some of those same people who criticized that are now jumping on you or others because they didn't have the right reaction, the right response, the right social media post. And so it does seem very tribal that there's really not an interest in discussion or persuasion or listening to where people are coming from to learn, but more wanting to draw lines. One of the things that I have noticed is that black Christians and white Christians believe a lot of the same things theologically, right? Like we believe the Trinity, we believe in Jesus, salvation, the Bible, all that. But by and large, black Christians and white Christians vote really differently. Why is that?
0: I don't think I can give an educated response to that because it is intriguing. I can say that in the conversations that I have with family, with fellow Christians that are black, there seems to be a consensus of Voting for the party that seems to care about the oppressed, whatever that means, like cares about, you know, healthcare, cares about women, cares about black community, cares about education, because sometimes it can seem to those who vote Democrat within black communities that Republicans care more about babies in the womb than they care about people outside of it. And so I guess that seems to be the thing, you know. And so I've never landed on either side because that's just not me.
1: Well, one more question to follow that up is that I think that black churches, predominantly black churches, handle politics differently than predominantly white churches do. In what way? Well, Think about a politician, most, I'm not saying all, because of course there's exceptions to this, but it would be really uncommon and a really big deal made of if you had, as a white church, a political leader come and speak from the pulpit, right, as part of your Sunday worship services. But at least my impression is that that's not totally uncommon within the black church, that there's more of a connection between politics, the political life, and the spiritual life than there is in the white church. Do you see that?
0: Yeah, and I think that might be because there's kind of been a history of Black politicians having some type of history in the Black church. You know, so you got the whole civil rights movement, like all of those cats were reverence Mm -hmm. or some connection. And so I think that's kind of the intersection is that they are pastors, preachers who also do social work.
1: Well, even if you think of the senator from Georgia, Raphael Warnock is an active pastor right now, and the senator from that state. And so that's just unique. I've always just been intrigued about the differences, the way the churches handle it. But let's get out of that and go back to what I think was your first book. Am I right? Gay Girl, Good God. Is that your first book? Yes. And you tell the story about how you came to faith. And it's been a little while since I read it. Great book. You talk about how you came to faith. And part of what you described there, you can tell from the title, is that you came out of a lesbian relationship when you started following Jesus. And one thing I'm, curious about is when you came to Christ, when you come to faith in Jesus, did your romantic desires, did those just change quickly? Or or did that take like years and years to change?
0: Yeah, it took time because I don't think sanctification hinges on it. And what I mean is when I came to faith, the Lord removed my heart of stone and gave me a heart of flesh where my ultimate affection was for Jesus, right? My ultimate love was for God. And so there was a level of me trusting him to work out all the other things. When I met my husband, we met as friends originally, probably when I was six months into being a believer. And I was very uninterested in the idea of being with a dude because it's a dude, like, (laughs) you know, like they act different, they smell different, they feel different, (laughs) like they're completely different species, it seems. But as my affections began to grow, they weren't growing in relation to his maleness primarily, but his personality, his character. And so as I began to trust him and get to know him out of that, I began to love and enjoy him as male, if that makes any sense.
1: (laughs) So when you came to faith, it's not like there was some sort of complete change in your whole person so that you go from being romantically attracted to women to being romantically attracted to men absolutely not it took months and building trust and it sounds to me like what you're saying although i don't want to put words in your mouth that you became attracted to preston who's not your husband not just to men in general is that right oh yeah
0: yeah yeah i think i said that in the book actually (laughs) that like i still am indifferent about men my heart is for preston
1: Period. So I'm sure he's happy with that.
0: Oh, absolutely. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so are you familiar with uh, Greg Johnson? He wrote this book, uh, Still Time to Care What We Can Learn from the Church's Failed Attempt to Cure Homosexuality. He's a pastor ah, in St. Louis.
0: I just remembered that I put that on my Amazon wish list. <laughs> so <laughs> I need to get it.
1: Well, I talked to him on our podcast. He's a great dude. And he's trying to make the point in that book that. Christians used to come alongside and care for gay people and build relationships with them and community with them and encourage them in the faith and point them toward Jesus. But somewhere along the line in the seventies, Christians decided they were going to cure people of their homosexuality. Right. And so they were looking for people to say, I came to faith and my homosexual desires changed. They went away. Yeah. Do you think that homosexuality can be cured like that? Or do you agree that it's more like coming alongside and caring for people as they are?
0: I think if we place it in the context of sin, then the question becomes not if is it curable, but is it something that you are able to put to death,
2: Hmm, Okay. right?
0: And so I think that's a part of the problem is that we've actually taken it out of the realm of sin and thought of it more in terms of psychology or hyper-spiritual, where you know you have some spaces that might lean Pentecostal. They're like, you just need to be delivered, mm-hmm. which is no different than saying you just need to be come straight. And so to me, I think if we understand it as, no, we were born after Adam, and therefore we've inherited a sin nature that expresses itself in a diversity of ways, and we have a choice to repent and turn from it and follow Jesus, meaning we need to consistently put to death what is earthly in us, even if it persists to the day that we die, but we do that by virtue of the power of the spirit and by looking to Jesus who, you know, went before us and despised the shame and endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. And so I think when you look at it that way, it's not a, can you be delivered or not? It's like, no, you can be set free from sin through Jesus and that's it.
1: (laughs) Do you have a lot of friends or any friends that are still practicing a lifestyle you no longer do, that are lesbians, or gay. And the reason I'm asking is because I think somewhere along the lines, we got the idea that if a person is genuine in their belief about Jesus, they will change their attractions. And in that sense, kind of, you might be a poster child for that group, right? I mean, you were in a lesbian relationship, now you're married, you got four kids. right? But I'm not sure we're supposed to try to get people to go from homosexual to heterosexual, are we?
0: No, that's not in the Bible.
1: You could be a sincere, Jesus-loving, Bible-believing Christian and still have same-sex desires.
0: Yeah, because, I mean, being straight doesn't make you morally right. Right. Being straight doesn't imply that you're full of the Holy Spirit or that you're obeying the command. Like, it means nothing apart from obedience to Jesus. And so I think the emphasis in the New Testament is not going from gay to straight, but from Sinful to holy, like the thing that gets us to that point is faith in Jesus. And so I think that's actually been a huge stumbling block for many people in the gay community is that the way we've talked about conversion. Is that we've talked about it in such a way that implies that to come to Jesus is to live a temptationless life. If same sex desires are in fact a temptation, and in essence, what I'm saying, come to Jesus so you won't be tempted. Where is that in scripture? <laughs> like, we will be tempted, but in Christ, we have the power to overcome those temptations. That's the difference, is that I'm no longer a slave to the things that I am tempted to leave Jesus for.
1: I wrote an article as published at the beginning of the year, encouraging people to not give up on the ability to make an argument in the public square for heterosexual, traditional, biblical marriage. It seems like right now that it's easy to give up on that because the culture has moved so far away from any sort of biblical position. But it was interesting because some affirming Christians, they got upset with me online on Twitter or where you say is a very bad place and I probably agree with you. But one of the things that they said is that, look, Christians used to be against interracial marriage And Mm -hmm. Christians are against gay marriage. But right now, all Christians would affirm interracial marriage. And eventually, eventually, you Christians are going to affirm gay marriage. So -hmm. they're making this link between interracial marriage and gay marriage. Have you heard that argument before? What do you say to that?
0: I have. There's actually some term for that, like this. I haven't got to this class in seminary, but something (laughs) like where there's a change over time and therefore like we can change ideas and things like that again i think the difference is god created ethnicity Mm -hmm. god created diversity sin is the reason why same-sex marriage exists and so there is no redeeming it and so if there were christians that were racist and had racist reasons for why they disapproved interracial marriage that was bad exegesis too Right. Like that was a misreading of scripture, too, if at all. And so that's my argument is that like you're basing bad interpretation of scripture as expressed through racist ideas to bad interpretations of scripture that are trying to affirm what Romans one actually disparages and calls idolatry.
1: Right. Being black or Hispanic or Asian or white or whatever. That's good. Right, that's something God created, and those are immutable characteristics about us, right? We don't change those. Yeah. Whereas how we act sexually, whether it's heterosexually or homosexually or however, are choices that we make. And so it seems to be a pretty big leap to compare interracial marriage to gay marriage, but it's part of the argument out there. And it's hard to respond in 280 characters on Twitter, right? So sometimes those conversations don't go very far.
0: You'd have to do a thread.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and then nobody reads it. Are you comfortable being a celebrity? I mean, you're a celebrity oh, Christian, man. right?
0: You have really good questions.
1: <laughs> so, we live in a time of celebrity, right? Our country is full of celebrities. It's the world of Kim Kardashian, right? And of course, she's not the only one, but man, everybody is a celebrity right now. And we worship celebrities. We love celebrities. And we shouldn't be surprised that that love for celebrity has come inside the church right? So now we have celebrity Christians, celebrity Christian leaders, but people are starting to turn on celebrities a little bit, right? The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, Caitlin Beatty's book about celebrity Christian leaders. And I'm just wondering, you know, are you comfortable being a celebrity Christian?
0: I don't even like the
1: phrase. (laughs) I'm sure you don't.
0: No one. Yes. So knowing that I don't like all that it comes with, I don't like the Inordinate esteem. I don't like the fanatical nature of some of the things that I have to experience when I go out or if I go to a church or all the things. I don't like the isolation that it can breed in being a member of a local church where there's this sense in which people know you but don't want to know you Hmm. by virtue of thinking they know you. (laughs) And so I think that's difficult. But then, is the Kind of scriptural framework I have in my mind that there are people in scripture who were known by many. You know, you have a David, you have a Moses, you have a Jesus, you have a Peter, Saul, Paul, you have John the Baptist. And like John the Baptist, my goal is okay, if this is the platform that the Lord seems to be continuing to give, then make sure that I'm pointing to Jesus. That's all I can do. And I am very mindful of finding ways to withdraw and retreat so as not to stimulate or like build a kingdom because that's easy to do you know oh let me make sure I put out this reel or let me make sure I post this or like not trying to create a kingdom in the name of Jesus I think that's a temptation
1: so like this might seem rude not intended to be at all. I'm definitely curious about the celebrity Christian thing and how it works, because I feel like there's a lot of people at fault for this. I mean, most of the times people blame the celebrity, but there's a reason that we have celebrities and that's because people like ordinary Christians want to hear from them. They wanna hear from Matt Chandler or John Piper or Jackie Hill Perry or Tim Keller, more than they wanna hear from their local pastor, right? Their local ministry leader. So if there's a blame to go around, it's often on the ordinary Christian for
2: Mm.
1: pursuing all that. But you you brought up putting yourself out there and you definitely do. I mean, you and your husband have decided to live online more than most people. Yeah. There's got to be some disadvantages of that. Like, I mean, one, you just mentioned that there's a lot of people who think they know you and they don't know you at all, but they're pretty Correct. sure that you're their friend. Yeah, Do You find that awkward, like tough to have real relationships?
0: <laughs> it can be awkward. Yeah. Because again, I'll go into spaces and I have to work through or sift through people's preconceived notions. Because Instagram and all these things and having a book about my story, right? Like it can create this false sense of intimacy that actually works against intimacy. But it's also been advantageous in me being able to serve people in a really unique way because people don't have their guards up with me. And so we can get straight to the punch when it comes to conversations about Jesus, about temptation and about sin and faith. And so I think that's one of the good things. I think with a heart that's not submitted, if not under leadership and constant discipleship, people take advantage of that kind of power. But I think when you love people for real, for real, you try to serve people in light of them being vulnerable with you.
1: Yeah, I think that when that podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, and plenty of other scandals from Robbie Zacharias to Bill Hybels, I mean, it's a long list. Exhausting. We all know them. We don't need to recount them all here. But I think one thing that it did is it undermined people's trust in their local church, right? Mm. Their local pastor, their local ministry leader, and... I don't know how we recover from that as just Christians, because what happens is that I hear that Mark Driscoll did all these bad things. And so now I look at my pastor and wonder, are you doing all those bad things too, right? But what that does is it causes me to go pick up the book of the other celebrity, because the celebrity Christian, I don't know what their sins are, right? Like I know my pastor's sins. I don't know the celebrity pastor's sins, right? And the celebrity pastor, doesn't ever say really hard things to get my business like my Mm. local pastor also knows my sins and my problems and asks me to serve and give but the celebrity doesn't really ask much of me so there's this safe distance between me and the celebrity most of it is through a book or through a screen or through a conference or something like that do you think celebrity christians you think that's bad for the church or do you think it's an overall Good for the church.
0: Are celebrity Christians bad for the church?
1: Yeah. Are they good for the church? Or is it maybe both, I guess?
0: I think it depends on how the person uses it. Hmm.
1: And you're trying to use it as best you can.
0: Yeah. Like I think if they use it and try to be faithful with it, I think it could be a blessing. Because me and my husband had a podcast about this called The Downside of Celebrity or whatever. Because I read this book about the phenomenon of celebrity and how there was a shift in the culture when we went from radio to TV, because when people could only hear voices, there wasn't this same kind of mental connection made that when people could see faces Mm -hmm. and how that's when celebrity kind of became a thing. And so again, I think the way the person uses it is important. And I think those who have influence, it is their duty to influence people back into their churches. It is their duty to say, hey, honor your pastor, find a local church, get in a small group, find some mentors, women, get an older woman, men, find an older man. Like, I think it's our duty to continue to push people back into the local church, but that's actually not common because a lot of Christian celebrities aren't actually in local churches, right? So that's not even a part of their discourse. (laughs) Oh, I figured. Oh, what is it? It's the immortality of celebrity. But basically, how being a celebrity is a form of concocting immortality because you create these little yous via books, via videos, via whatever that will outlive you.
1: It's interesting. It's very interesting. And you know, maybe in history, a person got their credibility and authority from being ordained within a church or having a certain education. Now people seem to get their authority through their followers like it's the attention economy that if people follow me and if i have a lot of followers then i must have something good to say but like you said that can be used well or misused
0: yeah jesus had 12 so there's that
1: (laughs) you blew up instagram the other day when you started talking about the enneagram oh lord So let's don't go too much into it because I don't have any desire to argue with about it or agree with you. I don't know what I think about the Enneagram. I'm not super into that kind of stuff just by personality. It doesn't interest me all that much. But what I want to get is below a little bit into, it seems like you're studying spiritual warfare or something. There seems to be more to it than just the Enneagram. For sure. What are you concerned about? What are you learning that's causing you to just be wary of lots of stuff or re-examine stuff? There
0: seems to be this, very low-key obsession with witchcraft,
1: particularly
0: with young people and women, you know? So kind of the the crystals or the worshiping of ancestors or spirit guides. And I think all of it kind of serves self and also is a consequence of trying to make sense of suffering. And so I've just been spending a lot of time With digging into these things, and because I think Colossians 2 warns us to not be taken captive by philosophies, by empty deceit, according to the elemental spirits of the age. And I think Christians have to be talking about this stuff because the enemy is very crafty.
1: So would you think something like yoga is like the Enneagram in the sense that—and I'm putting words in your mouth, you may not agree— but. Probably yoga can be used as a stretching thing where people just get some exercise. But it also has a history in different religions. So I'm wondering if you're seeing people out there, young people, women, you said, who are dabbling in the spiritual realm and maybe they don't even realize it?
0: Oh, for sure. Because the devil presents himself as an angel of light. And so that's why I think like those with some level of discernment have to kind of speak against the darkness. Now... I won't go as far to say that to participate in something like yoga or the Enneagram is to participate in witchcraft. But I do think we would be ignorant if we don't reckon with the origins of both, right? And so there's an element that has to influence the way we engage with certain things if they come from places that are dark. That's it.
1: You caused me to go, well, what's she talking about the Enneagram thing? My wife had told me about it. And so I just went and started doing some reading on it. And you're right. The origins, at least the way that Enneagram came into the United States, has some (laughs) suspicious characters involved. One guy who said he wrote the personality types for each of the numbers, says he did it under the power of, it sounds like a spirit, a demon. I don't know exactly what he would call it, but it sounds pretty crazy.
0: Yeah. And it's interesting because it actually has a worldview Hmm. attached to it. And so it's not as simple as, oh, this is a personality test. It's like, no, this is a personality test that actually comes with a certain kind of religious and spiritual framework that I think it would be wise for us to research and pray through.
1: Oh, I love that. And rarely does that framework have like a biblical framework over the top of it. So in other words, you're not hearing about sin and repentance and grace and Christ within that Enneagram worldview
0: you know, we have ministries that are attempting to merge the two. I haven't done enough work with seeing how possible that is.
1: Your latest book is Holier Than Thou, right? Mm-hmm. And I listened to it, Which, by the way, people, if you get the chance, you should for sure get on Audible because Jackie Hill is the reader, the narrator, and it's super well done. It's got great content delivered well. Holiness of God, when we hear it, I think most of us, Hear bad news. (laughs) (laughs) Convince us that the fact that God is holy isn't bad news. Tell us why it's not bad news for us.
0: Man, because it is the holiness of God that condemns us to a certain degree. Right. Right. Because, you know, like in Isaiah 6, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips and I live amongst the people of unclean lips. Like being in proximity to the holiness of God revealed his sinful nature as something that deserve judgment and wrath. And so that is bad news. But the good news is that it's also because God is holy, that he is also love. And it's in his love that he sent his son to die for us so that we could be what? holy like he is. And so I think we have to see that God's holiness is more comprehensive in the sense that it isn't just expressed in judgment, but also love, also mercy, also compassion, especially when you reckon with the idea of God's holiness, not only just being moral purity, but also transcendence, that God exists differently than us. And if that is the case, even when I pray and say, hey, God, can you please be with my daughter while she's at school in second grade protect her if he was a local god like the idols that we worship he wouldn't be able to listen to my prayer and move and be with my daughter at the same time and so there's even a level of like understanding the holiness of god as it relates to his distinctiveness that actually secures even the way i pray
1: (laughs) so i think that's good news like in Leviticus 10, there's a story of Aaron's sons, they priests, and they offer unauthorized fire or different translations call it different kinds of fire, but something they weren't supposed to do. And fire comes down from heaven and consumes them. Or Ananias and Sapphira lying to the Holy Spirit and immediately being struck dead and other stories like that in the Bible. And those sober me, but I'm ashamed to say that that, feeling of being sobered by God's holiness doesn't stay with me that long, as long as I wish it did. How has studying the holiness of God, how has it changed your life?
0: Oh man, one, I pray that it would. I said, Lord, don't let this just be a study that helps a bunch of people and is informative, but doesn't change my life. Because I think that's where hypocrisy kind of thrives, is being able to create resources that are helpful for other people, but actually not influential for you. And so that's one. I think God was faithful and it just expanded my, my, how do you say it? My imagination of God. Mm -hmm. So even how I said, like me praying for my daughter, it's like, because you're transcendent, you can do anything. But it also is like, man, you are committed to doing and being good. Mm -hmm. And so if I'm suffering, then it's like, okay, I have to believe That you are a God of compassion, the Lord, the Lord, the gracious and compassionate God. You're not lying to me when you say that. And so it even anchors me when I'm going through something difficult, where it's like, okay, God is being good, even though it doesn't feel good. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's made me trust him more. I can't say it any other way.
1: First John says that God is love. And Isaiah 6, that you've already told us about, says God is holy, holy, holy. Is one of those more important than the other? Is one of those more preeminent than the other, more at the foundation of God than the other? We only see, you know,
0: the repetition of a particular attribute of God in Isaiah six and in revelation, where it says, holy, 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 Mm -hmm. you don't see mercy, 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 just, just, just compassion, 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 which is to say that obviously the angels recognize that God is supremely holy, ultimately holy, completely holy. Like it carries this idea of he is holy through and through and through. And without holiness, God couldn't be Mm loved without moral purity god would not care about us god would not be self-giving and so his holiness is actually expressed in his love towards us without any moral purity i don't think we would have a god of love
1: one thing i loved about the book is that it just got me got everybody who read it to focus on god to focus on his character who he is what his promises are what he's like how dependable and reliable he is how you can bank your whole life on them. And I think a lot of us, we get our eyes on other things, like more practical things. You know, I want a book that helps me be a better leader, or I want something to help fix my prayer life or make me a better parent, you know, whatever. And we're looking for Christian books, and those are all good, and they have their place. But it seems like you put a huge emphasis on, no, if you know God, like know God, then not know about him, but know him, that some of these other things are going to fall into place.
0: Yes, I mean, seek the kingdom of God and everything else will be added to you. And I have to give credit where credit is due. I disagree with some of his positions, but John Piper completely changed my understanding of God. When I first came to faith and started to be introduced to the concept of Christian hedonism Mm -hmm. and just the way he centered Christ in his sermons, in his books, in his encouragement, even, it revolutionized. And I don't say that flippantly, I'm being literal. It revolutionized the way I read scripture because I went to scripture looking for God. And then now if I exhort, I'm trying to center God because it is really easy, as we all know, you know, practical stuff, being super pragmatic is cool and all, but it has the potential of being done apart from faith, right? And anything not done from faith is sin. And so, yeah, I could be a better leader, but if I'm not looking at God, I'm probably not going to be a godly leader, right? I could be a better parent. Mm-hmm. But if I'm not looking at God, I probably won't be like God, even in my parenthood. And so I think he has to be center in how we apply even just super normal stuff in our
1: day to day life. You mentioned John Piper, who are a couple other living people who have been influential in your thinking, either relationally, you know, or through their books or talks, who are a couple living people, maybe a couple dead people?
0: People we don't know are the woman that discipled me, Santoria, my pastor in Chicago, Brian Dye, and one of my mentors now, Melody Fabian. All of them have walked with me in different seasons. Santoria was with me when I first came to faith, so she just taught me the basics of being a Christian. Brian was with me when I was learning how to be a leader. And so he taught me the servanthood of being a Christian. And then Melody came along when I got married and had children. So she's been walking with me just at what it means to be a wife and what it means to be a mother. So I think they've been the most informative for me. Now, outside of that, obviously, Piper has helped me to be super God-centric. Tim Keller, he's been really helpful and insightful on how to be curious and how to be fair and how to read widely so as to serve the culture that you're in. Ward Charnock, I think that's his name. Yeah. His book, what is it? The existence of the attributes of God or something like that. That book, <laughs> that thing was <laughs> so good to me. And then lately I've been getting into Bobbing, because I'm in seminary, so that's kind of like a requirement in almost every class to read <laughs> Bobbing. And J.I. Packer has been helpful. Those are a few. C.S.
1: Lewis. Everybody got to say C.S. Lewis. You're not a Christian if you don't say C.S. Lewis. But I just want to point out that there have been real people in your life who've come alongside a pastor, a friend, mentors who have helped you at different seasons of your life. And I think it's good for us just to think about who could we be that for, right? I mean, all of us would love to have someone like that in our life. And we can pray and ask God, and God may very well be gracious and give us someone like that. But I think all of us have the ability to also say, who could we be? that for someone else, right? So since there's somebody maybe in a transition in life, they just got married or they just got divorced or whatever, that you could come alongside and teach how to be a wife or a mom or a leader. I love that. You got four kids. What age range? (laughs) Eight to one. Eight to one. And I have four (laughs) kids too. They're seven years apart. So similar to yours. It's just mine are a lot older than yours. And you travel a lot. Do they travel with you?
0: No. So my mom lives with me. Oh, wow. She's a big help.
1: Is that good or bad?
0: Oh, that's amazing. Because I prayed a couple of years ago. I was like, Lord, I I need help to even just manage this (laughs) home, you know, and she ended up moving in with us. And so it's been really beautiful, not even just on the like you help me type stuff, but just even the intergenerational Mm -hmm. dynamic that my children are being raised under. And I kind of like that a lot.
1: What's your parenting style, you and Preston? How would you describe your approach to parenting a one to eight-year-old?
0: Man, Preston is fun. He plays with them Mm -hmm. and does all. I'm not fun at all. Like, I'm (laughs) not about to play puzzles. I'm not about to play with the dolls and change my voice. I'm not about to do that.
1: Because why?
0: I don't, it just feels stupid. I just, and then my daughter, like, if I don't do the voice a certain way, Uh she gets mad at me. You gotta do the voice like this. It's like, I don't wanna play no more. I'm just taking, like, I'm making sure y'all fed, make sure you took a bath. I've been more intentional as of late. My oldest is eight, discipling her and trying to, like, just way more, what's the word, intentional, but also just strong on Bible and Bible literacy, because she's old enough to be able to take it in now.
1: Would you consider yourself strict or not so much?
0: Flexibly strict.
1: Flexibly strict?
0: (laughs) Strict (laughs) when it calls for it. (laughs) But yeah, I do want there to be a sense of honor and reverence.
1: So you grew up not knowing Christ, and I think you became a Christian when you were in your late teens, early 20s, is that right? 19. Oh, You and me, we're both from Florissant. We both became Christians when we were 19. Look at that. Who knew? We're four kids. Who knew? Yeah, four kids, seven years apart. I didn't know. You're like my long lost (laughs) twin or something. (laughs) Uh, So you grew up not knowing Christ, just like I did. And then I had to raise kids that I hope always knew Christ. Yes. Right? And that's where you are. Because my guess is that you grew up, and I think Preston has a similar story in the fact that he didn't grow up faithful to Jesus his whole life. So you and Preston and me and my wife, we went down the road of life without Christ and we saw how empty it was. I mean, there were some good times, don't get me wrong. Sin is fun, right? At least temporarily. But then we got to a point where we said, okay, I don't want this, I want Jesus. And sure, there's always temptations to go back and to sin or whatever, but we know that ultimately that will fail you. Now your kids, you hope, never experienced that. And yet at the same time, there's good things you learned. From yeah. wandering away from Christ and then finding him at 19. So how are you going to handle it if your kid wanders away from faith and mm-hmm. kind of lives like old Jackie Hill instead of new Jackie Hill?
0: Yeah. One, I don't have the expectation that that's not a possibility. Sure. I have no expectation that just because they were raised in our home, sit under the preaching of God's word, participate in family worship, do all the stuff. I have way too many friends that grew up as Christians and completely turned away from Jesus mm-hmm. and Jesus had to snatch them out of that. And so I recognize that salvation is by grace,
2: mm-hmm. Not by you family. know,
0: period. <laughs> and so I think what i've been doing lately i've been more intentional about praying for them in the future so for example instead of just god save them it's been on some lord help them persevere to the end give them godly friendships mm-hmm. Like the Lord has kind of helped me to even see their different personality types and the particular struggles that their particular personality types may lead them towards. Like my oldest, super stubborn, but also super highly intellectual. And so there's a sense of pride and a lack of teachability in her that could actually lead her down some really bad paths, right? And so me praying, Lord, help her have humility of mind. If she becomes a student, help her to learn and want to research you. And so I think praying super far in advance has actually made me trust the Lord faithfulness more than my own parenting.
1: Do you think you're prepared spiritually, mentally, emotionally for your kids to go through a season where they're not interested in faith in Jesus?
0: I have no idea. I will say that walking with people, I've been wondering if that's training me for it a little bit. You know, Hmm. when you disciple people and it's just like, bro, like, why do you keep doing (laughs) (laughs) this? I've been wondering, like, Lord, is this preparation for when I have to do this with my own 14-year-old? I don't know.
1: I think it was one of the scariest things that I have face, at least to my knowledge. My kids range from 20 to 27 now, and two of them got married this year. The older two got married. And as far as I know, you know, they had seasons where they were closer to Jesus or further from Jesus, but there was no sense in which they went away from Jesus completely. Uh, I'm very, very, very thankful for it uh, because it's all of grace. But I think that was always a thing that sat in the back of my mind is I had to be prepared for that because Mm -hmm. like you said, just because they grow up in a certain home doesn't mean they're going to love Jesus. Yeah. But you feel so powerless. Like I can't control that. I can't control their heart, but then it makes you depend on God.
0: Yeah. I've been trying to cultivate an environment that allows confession without shame.
1: Oh, I love it. Tell us about it. To
0: prepare them for that. So Um, I kind of started to think through this in just working in the sexuality space and hearing from people who came out and the responses of their parents and how that actually silenced them, which in turn, like kind of rooted them more deeply in their sin because they had nowhere to go to process it. Right. And so for my oldest in particular, because she's the one who's transitioning into a season that we're having more of these kinds of conversations where it's like creating an environment where you can confess or be confronted about a sin without feeling shame. So, for example, we had a situation our daughter, we knew that she had did something in particular and we asked her about it and then we asked her questions about it but making sure our posture is welcoming, mm. making sure our face is still loving and then hugging her. Mm. Like we still love you. We still are here for you. Like, you don't have to be afraid. You're not on punishment. And so I feel like that kind of lays the groundwork for if ever, God willing, they get themselves into some craziness, they know where to go.
1: It's that speak the truth in love that is so hard to do. Truth and grace at the same time. You telling that story reminds me of my son. My oldest son was probably... 15 years old and he had some buddies spend the night. And we knew just because sometimes parents know things that they had snuck out the basement door and had gone and like TP a yard and egg a car. I don't know, things high school boys knuckle had to do. Yeah. And we asked him about the next day and he said, no, that didn't happen. And I remember just saying to him, look, here's the deal. Right now you've got a choice and you're going to choose what kind of relationship we have. And you get to choose if we just get to talk about things and be honest and open and work through things together, or if we're going to have a relationship where we lie and hide and deceive. So just think about what kind of relationship do you want to have with us? Because we know which one we're going to have with you. So let me ask you one more time. Did you guys sneak out last night? And he's like, oh yeah, we for sure did. (laughs) And then we just talked about it, right? Just like you did. I love that. Hey, I really appreciate you spending so much time with us. Do you think you'd be willing to pray for us Pray for everybody listening to this. Pray for the church. Pray that we'd follow a holy God and love Jesus, whatever is on your heart.
0: Thank you, Lord, for today. Um, Today is the day that you have made. Today is the day that we woke up with new mercies. Today is the day that you are still seated on the throne. And so we thank you that you are Lord and King of the church. Uh, Even I was reading Revelation today and you you have and will conquer and you will give us power to do the same. And so we just pray for the church that you will continue to work in her, that you started, that you will grow our unity, grow our love, grow our faith, even grow our service to our communities um, and to the world and spaces around us. We pray that we will be anchored in the scriptures, that we would read it and understand it and be able to apply it. We pray that you would, uh, even how we spoke about earlier, God, that you would put people in our, in our lives and help us to have the wisdom and discernment to know if we need to pour a little deeper be more intentional. And I just pray ultimately that we would look like you, but that we would do it together. I pray this in your name. Amen.
1: Amen. Thanks, Jackie o. Thank you.